May I invite your attention now to the 23rd chapter of the book of Joshua. Read the whole chapter, but um, it's not a long one, so you stay with me as I read. Beginning at verse 1 of Joshua 23. Here we go. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of their names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you uh, great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from all this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, And you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, these last two chapters of the book of Joshua are are speeches. Um, Speeches that Joshua made towards the end of his life. I, I, I say that they're speeches, but... It really only may be one speech <clears throat> that covers two chapters. It's kind of hard to tell. But I think there are two speeches, and he, and we'll look at the, the other one next week. But both of these speeches, both of them are, are driven by the same concern. They're, they're fueled by the same passion. Like any other faithful leader of God's people, Joshua is concerned about what's going to happen to Israel after he's gone. And so in both of these these speeches of his, he poses a question. He poses a question for Israel. And the question is, whither Israel? Where, where, where will she go? Where will she end up? 
who will she end up serving? You know, the, the book closes, well, almost closes, two verses from the end. In, the, in chapter 24, in verse 31, you, you get this note. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the works that the Lord did for, for Israel. In that one text, there's a hint. There's a hint that there's a, there's a cloud that gathers off on the horizon that bodes ill for Israel. Or bodes ill for Israel. It's, it's a, it's an implication that this sophomore generation, the, the generation after Joshua and, and his peers, that this next generation will, um, will slip into apostasy. And that's exactly what happens. It happens in the next book, in the book of Judges, the next page over, you, you find these words. And all that the generation, all that generation were gathered to their fathers and those arose, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. That was Joshua's concern. And so he stands towards the end of his life and he issues a challenge and asks, in essence, a question, where are you going to end up? Who will you ultimately serve? You know, guys, in, in my experience, um, every couple that I marry, I, I guess, I guess, well, almost everyone, everybody who gets married enjoys the first month of marriage, or maybe the first week of marriage. You know, I, I've, I have had a couple of people tell me that their marriage went south on the honeymoon, but those are rare. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, the real issue in marriage is not the first month. The real issue in marriage is the long haul. And marriage is not the only relationship where the long haul is the issue. Not only is the long haul the issue when it comes to your relationship with your spouse, it is also the issue, ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to your relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, do you not, that it was Jesus who said, and you can check this out in Mark 13, 13. He said, it is he who endures to the end that will be saved. That means, ladies and gentlemen, that if you turn your back on Jesus Christ tomorrow, it just means that you didn't love him today. Joshua knows that the long haul is the issue. And so at the end of his life, he summons Israel to a meeting where he challenges them over their faithfulness to Yahweh. Joshua's on his way out. He says, I'm an aged man. I'm about to die. But he grabs the mic one last time. And he, and he speaks somewhat of a last will and testament, which, um, which really covers two chapters, 23 and 24. He's leaving behind some reminders, some instructions. He's leaving behind some stuff that he thinks the most, that is the most important. And it has nothing to do with making a living or building a career or how to get ahead. 
He mentions a danger. He gives some instructions about how that danger might be overcome. And then he gives some motives. And we're going to hold, we're going to save them, but we're going to cover the first two points, but we're going to, we're going to hold on to the motives for two weeks from now. And when we, when we're gathered to have the Lord's Supper, we'll talk about the motives then. But ladies and gentlemen, you got to know at least this much as we begin. Everyone in Joshua's audience that day wanted to, to finish well. Just like every marriage that our wedding ceremony that I perform, the couples, they really want to have a lifelong marriage, but some of them don't. And just like in this audience here today, everybody here wants to make it to the finish line. But some of us won't. Some of us will make shipwreck of our souls. And so, Joshua leaves behind some, some instructions for all of us. First of all, I want you to notice he mentions a danger. He warns us of a danger. It's in verse 7. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. That's the danger, ladies and gentlemen. In uh, 21st century parlance, you could call it apostasy, or you could call it ecumenism. You could call it dilution. A dilution of the truth. Mixing in the false with the true. When we get, oh, way too cozy with falsehood, that's the danger that he sees. You know, guys, in this chapter, he uses the Hebrew term goyim seven times, and he never has used it up to the the first 22 chapters. But he uses that term seven times in in in, in 23. Goyim. You know what that means? You know what that Hebrew term goyim is? It's translated Gentiles. It's translated um, nations. It, in essence, means them. Israel was set apart for Yahweh. And then there was the rest of them. The Goyim. Israel was to be distinctly devoted to him. And so are we. It's not that we're not supposed to be, that we're to avoid them. But we are not to let their beliefs get mixed in with ours. That's the danger that he sees, ladies and gentlemen. He doesn't warn them against stealing or Murder or adultery. His main concern is false gods or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them. Don't let those gods among you creep among you. You 
You know, ladies and gentlemen, um, Joshua seems to know that we are people who are prone to wander into the awaiting arms of false gods, aren't we? We find substitutes for the real God and make them the definitional center of our lives. And we learn to live for them, like like success and money and fame or beauty or thinness or or applause or family or kids or approval. There, there's no end to the sacrifices that we won't make for our false gods. You know, guys, I was in a I was in a luncheon recently, and a pastor friend of mine said this about his congregation. He said, they have an interest in God and a passion for everything else. Hey guys, does that, does that describe us? We have an interest in God, but a passion for everything else. I want to read you something that describes a passion. It's, um, it's a little bit dated because it's written by a communist. And communism has fallen on hard times, although there is one giant country out there by the name of China that happens still to be a communist country. But this is written by an American communist in Mexico City, written back to his, um, his fiance, breaking off their engagement. And this young man says this to his ex-fiance. We communists suffer many, suffer many casualties. We are those whom they shoot, hang, lynch, tar and feather, imprison, slander, fire from our jobs, and whose lives people make miserable in every way possible. Some of us are killed and imprisoned. We live in poverty. From what we earn, we turn over to the party <clears throat> every cent which we do not absolutely need to live. We communists have neither time nor money to go to movies very often, nor for concerts, for beautiful homes, or for new cars. They call us fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one supreme factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life that money could not buy. We have a cause to fight for, a specific goal in life. We lose our insignificant identities in the great river of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard, or if our egos seem bruised through subordination to the party, we are amply rewarded in the thought that all of us, even though it may be in a very small way, are contributing something new and better for humanity. There is one thing about which I am completely in earnest, the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my meat and drink. I work at it by day and dream of it by night. Its controls over me grows greater with the passage of time. Therefore, I cannot have a friend, a lover, or even a conversation without relating them to this power that animates and controls my life. I measure people, books, ideas, and deeds according to the way they affect the communist cause and by their attitude to it. I have already been in jail for my ideas, and if need be, I'm ready to face death. You know, we aren't communists, are we? But that's pretty impressive passion, wouldn't you agree? And it, and it helps me get a, a sense of, is it true of me 
that I have an interest in God and a passion for everything else. You know how you can tell? You can ask yourself this. What is it over which I have a constant fear and live in constant insecurity that I'm going to lose? That were I to lose this, I wouldn't want to go on living. And so um, I try to mask my fears with, with busyness and gaiety and sometimes even alcohol. I work harder and I try to perform better so that maybe I can convince the real God to let me, to let me keep hold of my false God. That's the danger, ladies and gentlemen. That's the danger that Joshua saw. And he warns Israel against it. Guys, did you know that just about every one of the Ivy League universities began as a Christian school? Did you know that? Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Princeton. Princeton began as a a, a school called the uh, College of New Jersey. And out of its first four presidents were some names that you would recognize. I think he was number three. The third president of Princeton was a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Considered the greatest theologian America has ever produced. The fourth president was a guy by the name of Samuel Davies. Considered the finest preacher that America has ever produced. But today, on the staff at Princeton University is a man by the name of Peter Singer. Peter Singer is considered the most influential philosopher in America today. And if you will, you can Google him, I did. If you read about his views on abortion, euthanasia, infanticide, by the way, Peter Singer is, is in favor of killing, not of unborns, but of newborns, because he does not think that they have the essential characteristics of personhood, rationality, autonomy, and self-consciousness. So, you have the permission, in his mind, to kill him. You ought to read some of his views on bestiality. He calls himself a zoosexual. He talks about French kissing his dog. That's at Princeton, ladies and gentlemen. Where Jonathan Edwards used to be the president. How does it happen? You know, a few minutes ago, I used a a clause... And, uh, and it's a clause that's taken out of one of the hymns that we sing around here. It, I said that Joshua knew that Israel was prone to wander. Well, that really comes out of a, a hymn that we love to sing at this church. It's a, it's a great hymn. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
Do you know who wrote that hymn? <clears throat> His name is Robert Robinson. And he was born in England about 250 years ago. Um, and early in his life, his father died, and so his mother shipped him off to London to learn the trade of barbering. While in London, he came under the influence of the preaching of George Whitfield and was converted and sensed that God had called him into the ministry. And so he began to, um, began to prepare and train for the ministry. He uh, finished his preparation and was called for his first job as a uh, pastor in a Baptist church in Cambridge, where he experienced some enormous success. Apparently, however... This young man was not ready for the success that he experienced. He began to lapse into some some various serious carnality. And as the years passed, he faded from the ecclesiastical scene and really nobody thought much about him anymore. Years later, Robinson was making a trip uh, by stagecoach. And he happened to be sitting in the stagecoach next to a woman who was reading a book with obvious pleasure... And there was apparently one particular page in the book that she found so enjoyable because she kept turning back to it and turning back to it. And so finally, she turned to Robinson with her book and she pointed to the page um, and, and asked what he thought about what he was reading on the page. He read a little bit and he turned away. And... Um, He tried to change the subject and tried to get her to concentrate on the landscape that was passing by, but she was not going to be denied. And so she told him of the great benefits that she had received from the words of the hymn that she was reading. And she expressed such great admiration for the message behind the hymn. Robinson, overcome with emotion, burst into tears and said, Madam... I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings that I once had then. Robinson was much older then, but he was now light years away from his commitment to Jesus Christ. And it was ironic. Then in his own hymn, he prophesied of what would happen to him. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. How does that happen? What can we do to avoid that from taking place in our lives? Well, ladies and gentlemen, Joshua leaves behind some instructions in this text. He points out the danger in verse 7. But in verse 6, he gives us some instructions. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. You may not remember this, guys, but that's the very piece of instruction that God gave to him in chapter 1, verse 8. 
when he was just starting out as the leader of Israel, God comes to him and says, now you, you keep yourself. Keep yourself under that book. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. And here is this aged man 40 years later. Saying to Israel. Stay under God's word. You know, ladies and gentlemen, one of the warning signs that apostasy has already been set in in a, in a church or or in one's individual life is a lessening respect for God's word. We say things like, oh, that's just your interpretation. Would you like to have another indicator? Guys, we have people on staff here at Grace of Ann that work really hard to try and put scripture into music. We sang one of them this morning. We sang Matthew 6.33. They work real hard to mix those and to make those catchy for your children. So that you as parents can be helped in communicating principles from the scriptures to your children. Do you find... Do you find that you don't have time to do scripture memory because there's a soccer game scheduled? Ladies and gentlemen, the culture in which we live tells us that truth is a subjective, it's an, it's an inner thing that, that is relative to us, that is, that, that, that you discover it that you discover it inside. That's what your culture bombards you with. That truth is a subjective inner thing. Ladies and gentlemen, Christianity, Christianity holds that truth is an objective. It's an outer reality to which I must submit myself. It's not something that I go and find with my experiences and my, my, my inner self. It's an objective reality to which I submit I keep myself under its rule, under its sway. So, ladies and gentlemen, either I am the final arbiter of the truth or this is. How do you keep from becoming a Princeton as an institution? 
How do you keep from becoming a Robert Robinson? I self-consciously, regularly, passionately put myself under the authority and precepts of this book. There's a couple other things that Joshua mentions. He says in verse um, 8, that you shall cling to the Lord your God as you uh, have done to this day. And then um, in verse 11, he says, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. You know, as I study that passage, I um, I love the word cling. And I, and I wondered, what's the difference between clinging to the Lord and, and loving the Lord? And here's what I came up with. You know, I have a 30-year-old daughter who I think loves her daddy. But when she was 30 months old, she used to cling to her daddy. There's a certain infant-like quality to clinging. When I as an individual recognize that I'm dependent, that I'm reliant, I am being instructed to cling. Cling. And I'm being told to love. Doesn't, doesn't love prompt one to want to please the object of his love? I mean, what woman here would be convinced that she had a man who loved her? If he did nothing to ever try to please her. In the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, love is something that is commanded. And and, and that doesn't mean that biblical love lacks emotional depth. But it does mean that it is more than just an emotion. Love is to be expressed in a glad and a willing obedience to the object of the love. You want to make it to the end, do you? And I would say, ladies and gentlemen, in this audience, I bet all of us would say yes. And ladies and gentlemen, Joshua's got a formula for you. You love and you cling to the Lord God Almighty. And then you keep yourself underneath His Word. You don't go to the right. You don't go to the left. You find the precepts of this book. And you live accordingly.
telling you, ladies and gentlemen, for some of us in this room, apostasy has already begun. Guys, we all want to make it to the end. We all want to finish well. But before you can ever finish well, you got to take the first step. And you know what the first step is, don't you? Here's the first step. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Have you taken that one? Is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone your only hope of forgiveness in life after death? That's step one. And then the rest of our lives are lived loving and clinging and placing ourselves under the authority of objective truth. Our Father, I pray that you will remind your people that we are indeed prone to wander. That there's nothing about us that's any more special than anybody else. That we are... um, We are prone to allow false gods to creep into our soul. And then we begin to accommodate the truth that those gods stand for. And then the soul collapses. And I pray, oh God, that you would prevent that. I I pray that you would prevent that on the part of us as individuals. But that you would prevent Grace Evangelical Church from becoming something akin to Princeton University. Lord, might this place find their great joy in humble and dependent reliance upon you and all that you've done for us in Christ and self-consciously yield to the authority that's contained in this book. Oh God, we are not the determiners of truth. We thank you for providing it, though, so that we can find it and read it and yield to it. That is our intent, oh God. That is our commitment. And we make that commitment to you. In Jesus' name.